Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 302, and today's guest is Wasim Khalid, CEO and co-founder of Blackbird AI. Blackbird AI helps organizations detect and respond to threats that cause reputational and financial harm. Powered by their AI-driven narrative and risk intelligence constellation platform, organizations can proactively understand risks and threats to their reputation in real time. The company recently announced its $20 million Series B round of funding led by 1011 Ventures. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like a deep discussion about how quickly AI is developing and if it should be regulated, how Wasim started as an entrepreneur as a sophomore in college and has been building companies since, the history of misinformation dating back to 1835, how Wasim started to focus on AI back in 2017, and how being early to market as an AI-first company has ultimately been a competitive advantage, all the details about Blackbird AI and how their platform is helping enterprises plus growth plans ahead and so much more. Okay, quick side note. It's hard to believe that we have over 300 episodes of the VentureFizz podcast. We have built up an amazing catalog of inspirational stories around building companies and every episode includes lots of great advice to follow as well. If you haven't checked out our past interviews, go to venturefizz.com slash podcast for the complete list. Oh, and just want to ask, please share the VentureFizz podcast with your friends and colleagues in the industry. I appreciate all of your support. Okay, without further ado, here's my interview with Wasim. Wasim, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk to you because um, the world of AI, there's 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 a ton going on um, and there's a lot of moving parts, lots of different directions with the technology. It's moving fast. Uh, you're building a company that's very meaningful. So we're going to talk a lot about Blackbird AI. But before we get into that, I want to talk about uh, AI in general and your thoughts on some of the things that have been uh, out there as far as it is rapidly developing. And there's been some hesitations of, should this be regulated? Should the, you know, should it be paused? There was that uh, open letter that was signed by 1500 tech leaders to, you know, pause these AI experiments. So uh, while I had you as an expert in this world, I thought it'd be a perfect way to kick off the conversation. So, so what are your thoughts on the AI development and should it be regulated? And, you know, it's, it's evolving so quickly. Yeah. So, you know, in the past, it has been said that computers are like bicycles for the mind, right? Uh, and AI is, is somewhat like a, like a rocket ship for human capability, but it, it actually does the best and the worst uh, in some ways of, of human capability with technology. Uh, and I, I like to think of this as like an analogy around a new innovation that can be used for good or, or evil, right? So nuclear fission is a great example, right? So theory of relativity and what you end up with is you end up with a clean nuclear energy on one side, although that's a little debated as to whether it's truly clean, but let's call it like a endless source of energy on one side, but on the other side, you have the nuclear bomb, right? Uh, and so what what really ends up happening is you know, whose finger is on the red button of the technology, and ultimately, since someone's going to use it for something that could potentially harm society, you need someone who is working on uh, the equivalent of anti-nuclear missiles or takedown systems for you know people who are going to misuse the technology so 
Uh, I think a lot has been said about all the, the great things and uh, many of the bad things that are coming out of generative AI in particular and other types of artificial intelligence technologies. You mentioned, uh, you know, this this kind of uh, 1,500 people that said, hey, we got to slow down and regulate. Um, now, I do believe that regulation is needed. Uh, regulation is needed to actually drive innovation, which is a little counterintuitive. But if you think back to regulation for new technologies, let's take just something as simple as uh, an automobile, right? Uh, a lot of people don't remember this today, but there was a time when you could drink in a vehicle, there were no seat belts, and, uh, and there weren't really enforced speed limits, right? It was just like, here's the car, it moves really fast, and we can get from point A to point B, like however we want, right? And there was a huge uproar, uh, as bad as anti-vax movements are today about no seat belts in cars, mm-hmm. right? And um, ultimately, seat belts got put in cars, and people really don't think about it today. But uh, one thing that was really interesting, looking back, that uh, you know people can see is putting seat belts in cars. And speed limits didn't actually slow people down. It actually enabled ways for them to go faster without getting themselves killed, right? But the speed limits and and the speed with which the vehicles could go got faster and faster because all of these things got put into place, including things like safety bags, LIDAR now, and, and everything else, right? Uh, and we can see the speed limits going up on the highway as well over time, right? So that's kind of a, a long way to say, if we put the right regulation in place, for AI, it can actually increase the rate at which the innovation can be uh, proliferated across all of the different uh, industries that it can empower, but it's about doing it the right way. Uh, The piece of paper that you're talking about that all of these people signed though, problem with it is, this is just my personal opinion that a lot of the people who actually signed it are the ones who are going to be driving a lot of that innovation forward mm-hmm. and and some might say you know the optics of it is like hey they came in they did their thing they launched it into the world and now that regulation is really going to impact all of the companies that are trying to compete in that space so the, the regulatory layer will come in under them because they have the money frankly and resources to lobby against a lot of those regulations. In fact, I'm not going to name companies on on the podcast right here. It's it's out there in the public domains. Some of the bigger companies are out there very publicly saying, regulate us, regulate the industry, but they're spending millions of dollars lobbying in area, in places like Europe, um, where the bills typically pass and are, are more stringent, um, specifically not to regulate. You know, these kinds of regulations we saw it in the crypto industry when crypto exchanges started coming up, that some of the companies that were dialed in with the regulators and had the big bucks, were able to buy the licenses, but all of the competition that were doing the exchanges, particularly in New York City, were totally crushed, mm. right? Yeah. So that, that's the kind of thing you don't really want, because this is a space where you don't want centralized control mm-hmm. uh, with uh, with a couple of companies that can afford to not get whacked by the regulation. So, yeah. Yeah. And the regulation, when it comes into place, really needs to have enforceable teeth and ways to measure if it's not being... Uh, followed otherwise you know it just just becomes another policy another piece of paper yeah no it's got to be done right but I, that, that's got to be a, a tough one to wrangle together too as far as trying to get it right and 
Uh, so I guess we'll, we'll see what happens, but uh, it's an interesting space, no doubt. All right, well, let's uh, rewind the clock. So where did you grow up? What were you like as a child? <laughs> uh, tinkerer for sure. Um, you know, my father uh, was into computers and he was an educator at, at various universities, uh, primarily in the Northeast here in New York. I was also up in Toronto. Um, I was born in Chicago, spent the first several years of my life in Brooklyn, uh, you know, where, where my mom was doing her, her residency in, in the 80s, early 80s. And, and then, you know, we moved around a lot. Um, and uh, and so one of the consistent things were uh, computers. Like, so my, my father would always bring home the newest thing on loan from the university because these were really expensive back then, you know, so people couldn't just grab a personal computer. And so I was always tinkering with those, uh, taking them apart, putting them back together. Um, I still, if I have the time, like to, you know, build my own computers which are harder to do now because it's just hard to find the parts but yeah i mean i was the typical one of those kids who took things apart and put them back together uh and uh i was just curious about technology in general particularly computers and software i started on basic which shows my age so um you know i'm there so, with you <laughs> <laughs> yep, um, all of that um bbs is uh you know connecting just local computers together early forms of the internet and you know all of that so um and uh, you know, ultimately uh, went to school for pre-med, like many uh, uh, Indian kind of Desi families. And, and I actually switched majors to computer science without telling telling my folks for a couple of years. Uh, <laughs> and uh, that was that was an interesting discussion. But yeah, I was a computer guy when I went in, and uh, you know, uh, it was very clear that that was the path. And so started my first um, company while I was a sophomore in college there with some friends um, wow. and, okay. uh, you know, and, and have really been doing startups ever since. Mm. Um, I've never really been in like the traditional workforce, uh, but, you know, just, just been doing startups since then. And, uh, you know, Blackbird AI is, you know, my, my sixth uh, startup of, of note, right. There were some other ones that were like cycled up and cycled down, but it's always been one of those things where um, it's been technology related uh, or, you know, uh, some form of product, uh, you know, creation, uh, either for the masses or for B2B. So, uh, but I have jumped industries in the past. I've done manufacturing and product retail licensing and, and then, but I always come back to software uh, or software engineering, and in this case, artificial intelligence for the last, uh, you know, six years or so. So, so what led you down the path of starting your first company when you were in college? Cause you know, were you always kind of entrepreneurial? Like, and, and what was that first company? So the very first company actually was uh, a, a music uh, promotion and booking company. Uh, so my friends and I were actually uh, uh, DJs in the early days, like mid nineties. So drum and bass, uh, EDM, early forms of EDM and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things we wanted to do is you know, we wanted to play with our favorite artists. And so the way in which we kind of went about that was starting to book those artists um, into like into venues, right? Doing doing these special events, uh, and uh, you know that that led to us kind of understanding. Oh, like the money's not really made by um, ticket sales, but by sponsorships and uh, you know things of that nature. And so just, just getting into that whole business, that was one of the first ones we did. And we brought a lot of world famous DJs to different cities uh, across New York, um, and uh, and so that was really interesting. Um, but kind of got the bug there from just like trying to figure out how to do those things without resources and just learning about these things and, and then figuring out like the mechanisms of how a business works. 
um, I, I just like, I remember that was one of the, these early insights where it's like, okay, whether it's us doing this at a venue and getting like a sponsor or, you know, Madison Square Garden, it works the same way, right? You know, and at the time when you're like, like 19, 20 years old, it doesn't really sink in fully that it's the, it's the sponsorships, for example, that drive all the revenue, right? Mm -hmm. It's kind of like when you find out that it's the popcorn that drives all of the revenue at movie theaters, right? It's like, exactly. oh, okay, there's a whole hidden business model uh, under the other machine. So I, th I always find, found those things kind of interesting is how do you, how do those systems work and, and how do you make those better, right? Um, so uh, now most of, well, actually all of the other startups I've ever done though, were like, hey, here's an opportunity to make some money, you build a business. With Blackbird, it's really different actually, um, because after I got out of my last business, which I did for seven years, and and, and you know, I had sold that business. That was a, a electronic uh, and brand licensing company called Lux Mobile. Lux Mobile, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, really wanted to do something great. It, it was a lot of fun. We got to work with artists like you know Lady Gaga and Fifty Cent and do their licensing and all of this. But it it, it lacked to me, especially by the fifth year in, like it lacked like meaning and substance. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it wasn't really my world. And I wanted to get back to technology. And, and the key criteria there was doing something that is impactful. Um, and so, you know, my co-founder, who's been a longtime friend, Nasha, he, he and I uh, were talking about, like, what is that impactful thing? He was working at Nuance. He's got a PhD in AI and linguistics. And we wanted to do something together. Uh, and it, it was... You know, like 2015, you know, when we were talking about this in the early days and wow. a lot of things were happening around the elections and social media in general, early grumblings of, of unusual activity that we were just noticing ourselves, like people falling for unusual um, hoaxes and things of that nature. Not political at the time, silly things like giant tortoise found off the coast of Japan and you see a poorly photoshopped turtle on an 18 wheeler and you see a guy who's got a, you know, uh, an MD you know, sharing this thing with his, with his, uh, with his peer group. And you're like, right. why is this happening? Yeah. And, um, and then of course these things became more and more prevalent as the election cycle came through. And so it's kind of blown our minds that this was happening and that it, 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 people weren't noticing it. It's kind of like in the big short where they say like, why are you guys the only ones who saw the subprime uh, thing coming? Right. We're the only ones that looked right. And right. so at the time back then, there were very few researchers who were really looking at computational propaganda, social media as a manipulation vehicle. Uh, and, and of course, we were doing that research for ourselves at the beginning. Um, and then when the Cambridge Analytica thing broke, and everybody started talking about it. At least it seemed like everybody at the time. Today, every it's dinner table conversation, disinformation, misinformation, or whatnot. But at the time, that was when it really went. When Zuckerberg got up and kind of apologized for all of this, and it was real, then it, it became something that was more, um, more tangible. And, and people started also taking some of the early work we were doing more seriously on the research side. And that's when we really decided someone needs to build a company, build technology. More importantly that can move the needle on detection and analysis of such a existential problem. And I don't use existential lightly or as hyperbole. I think that's more evident today than it was in 2017, where people were like, you guys are a little nuts, man. This election's going to go by. This thing's going to just go away. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and and nobody's going to pay for this kind of thing because, you know, it's, it's social media. It doesn't really matter. It's not going to change anybody's minds. It's just just Twitter, just uh, just uh, you know, online chatter, right? So, 
we've come a long way since then, I would say. Uh, and well, so I saw a session that you were a part of on YouTube that the history of misinformation goes way back. And you had oh, yeah. from 1835, this newspaper called the New York Sun or NY Sun, oh, yeah. Life on the Moon Detected. <laughs> and yeah. they had like a picture with, you know, people with wings and just like what you expect something may envision in a sci-fi novel. So this this has been going on for a long, long time. Bat people on the moon, the sun. That's one of well, that's one of my favorite little anecdotes. I have a, a little lithograph of uh, of the bat people actually that I, that, that I found online. It was floating <laughs> around actually because okay. that was that's interesting uh, because it was like a very notable early uh, version long, long before War of the Worlds radio broadcast that uh, the aliens was long before that. And so, you know, with these kind of lithograph sketches that they put in the paper. They had said that uh, bat people were on the moon. Mm-hmm. They cited uh, the the person who researched it and figured it out. Totally fictitious, you know, uh, avatar type, you know, uh, person didn't exist. And ultimately, the sun sold more copies than ever before when they put that story out. You mm-hmm. know, and uh, and so it was one of these early uh, early events. They just got everybody because they were so used to seeing it in a credible source. And, and there was no indication that this was maybe satire or fiction or whatnot. And there you had like a very early example. If, if it's from a source that looks like news and feels like news, people can take it as news. Right. Uh, and of course, you know, pre 2015, you'd look at that and kind of go, man, people were so gullible back then. And now, you know, you've got everything from flat earthers to to the you know the conspiracies that float around online every day around every event. It's very clear that we are you know not dissimilar at all from the people who read the Sun uh, whatsoever, right? And the reason for that is really that people, you know, from a psychological perspective, they kind of chase the sensationalist uh, content that's out there, right? And not only do they react to it. They also tend to share it with their peer groups more. Back then, sharing it would mean buy another copy of the Sun. Today, it's just mash the share button, right? And uh, or or send it to someone via WhatsApp. And that's that's really how these kind of um, uh, these storylines spread, right? And in the way that we've always thought about it, just like those early methods, but on a new medium with a much much bigger megaphone and without top down control. Right? That story came from the Sun and from the Sun's editor and from a particular journalist. But online, everything is decentralized, right? So you can you can build a decentralized cult without a figurehead today, and everyone will self-subscribe once it gets out there, and everyone can participate, right? That's what QAnon is, for example. It's a self-propagating cult that just builds new rules and new systems to engage new communities, right? So totally different behavior than the way these things used to come at everyone in the past because of social media and networked communication. Now, that network communication is not going away. The question is, how do you understand the inherent risk uh, within this kind of uh, content that programs people? Uh, and, the, and we think about it through a little bit of a different lens, right? So in the very early days, yes, we saw this as an existential risk, misinformation, disinformation. And, and just to define a few terms, uh, you know, misinformation is the unintentional spread of disinformation, Disinformation is the intentional creation of content that is meant to deceive. Right? Got it. Okay. An example of that would be, you know, uh, flu vaccine causes COVID nineteen. 
that's a, a piece of disinformation that was put out there in 2020. Uh, and uh, and that was designed to deceive. Uh, now, if somebody's grandmother hits the share button, that's misinformation. She didn't create it, inadvertently shared it, right? Um, now, a lot of people kind of think about this as a true or false situation, this kind of very uh, binary thing, red or green, let's say. Green is you know it's safe or it's not safe. We found very early that if you really want to use technology to quantify this kind of risk, that you have to look at all that gray area even more than the just the red or green, the true or false. And so the way we approach the entire information ecosystem, which by the way, we think is existential because narratives can impact things like climate change, elections, uh, you know, sustainability, climate science, vaccines, right? Just the list goes on and on. You think about every critical area that's going to affect mankind in the next you know, it's going to essentially affect society and, and humanity for the next 10, 20, 50 years. Those key areas, one, they're controversial, right? Very fiery opinions on both sides. And two, they are areas that can very actively be uh, polarizing and, and, and make it easy for, you know, online actors or even foreign malign nations to, to, to fan those flames within particular communities and societies, right? Because those are controversial topics, but they are very important topics and they can be impacted negatively by corrupted information streams. So when I when we think about like narrative, we think about like, what is the emerging, this is at least our lens on it. We built something called the Blackbird Signals Framework to make sense of all of this. You got millions of posts coming in. You've got all these different actors, threat actors, regular users, all on different platforms is just a noisy mess typically. And historically people have kind of used traditional media monitoring platforms, social media listening, try to make sense of this. But with all the new tradecraft around this problem set, that is a very poor proxy for harm. This kind of 15 year old uh, monitoring tool that counts keywords and mentions and some simple sentiment, you can't understand this kind of tradecraft, which is about bot networks and it's about narrative and counter narrative and it's about uh, you know infiltrating certain communities and getting them to, to 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 behave differently to certain types of ideas and so high level I think about this as a cyber attack on human perception and what Blackbird really provides is cognitive security right or, or perception intelligence you could say um, or a shielding mechanism to be able to detect and understand the nature of the manipulation in that ecosystem and the harm it might cause. Now, if we go to the top level there, we think about narrative and counter narrative. When I say narrative, I'm talking about any kind of assertion online that tries to shape perception around a person, place, or thing. You know, it could be a policy, it could be whatever, but it's, it's, it's an assertion that's trying to change your mind or, or drive your behavior around something. And so, you know, every company out there Every organization, every government, they have a narrative around something that they're trying to uh, convey to everyone. And for every narrative, there is a counter narrative. And sometimes there's 50 more counter narratives to the nth degree on that original narrative. And so it gets very convoluted very quickly unless you have some way to quantify the origin point of that narrative and how it's been spreading and propagating across these different uh, ecosystems, right? You know, online ecosystems dark web to social to news to forums being able to look at that and then being able to see 
what kind of risks are actually, uh, what kind of risks are in those narratives to a particular organization, because no two organizations have the same definition of risk. So we've built a system that looks at narrative and counter narrative using AI and being able to identify those risks, everything from toxic language to calls to violence, to something people are very interested in, which is how much bot-like activity is propping up a narrative, making it seem like there's more people talking about it to recruit new users into those ideas. That's that's the technology platform that we've really built, a very high fidelity, high speed way to understand narrative conflict, not true versus false, uh, not to, uh, you know, censor because we don't work with social media platforms we work with organizations to understand what is going on this is something people have been doing for many years with social media monitoring but very poorly very low fidelity or people try to do it and it's very slow and so for us it's high fidelity high speed because it's an ai platform and we've most recently taken all of the ai we've built in the analysis and added a, a generative AI reporting function that acts as a co-pilot to make sense of things in, in plain human language versus this kind of more complex network analysis and uh, and data analysis tool that you require a lot of training. Now the Gen AI can actually report this stuff in, in a very human form using the data we, and the systems we've built over the last six years. Well, I, th- I think it's, um, you know, when you talk about, we're going to talk about, you, you know, you raise capital, but uh, as a venture capitalist, they're looking for obviously a great team, large market potential, and defensible technology. And when I hear what you have built, and for the length of time that you've been building it, you know, since was it 2017, 2016 that you started? 2017 was the official kind of spin up, and and a lot of the work we did originally is for uh, for the Department of Defense. So um, it was in very critical environments initially overseas, um, and uh, and then we moved to more enterprise or commercial work in, uh, in, in 2019, 2020. Yeah. Okay. So you've been building this core platform. You understand AI to a very sophisticated level as compared to others that are trying to get up to speed now. And what I, th- when I was watching this presentation with, uh, UCSB, um, you were talking about GPT three and this is not, you know, just, you know, when was that officially announced? That was, Q4 of last year is that like my memories? Yeah, that was that was an old interview that you that was like when 2021. Yeah, Yeah. so you were already talking about things that are very current generative AI. Yet I was like, wait, how did he know about this? (laughs) Yeah, so you know, before GPT and and kind of transformer models in general were um, popularized or became part of the common conversation or uh, public conversation. Back even far back as 2017, one of our premises, other than analyzing and detecting these risks in the information ecosystem today, was always with an eye on how are we going to be prepared? National security apparatus, each individual, how are we going to be prepared for a world? And I used to call it AI-driven computational propaganda, right? Mouthful, right? Today, I just call it generative AI, right? Um, And so, (laughs) you know, but, but what we were thinking about back then was, I used to say exactly this. Imagine a world where a threat actor or a nation state can type in a couple of phrases and the AI goes ahead and creates the narratives and the counter narratives ad nauseum. And then other mechanisms, AI or not, bot networks can then disperse all of those narratives and counter narratives. And all of them could be potentially misleading, false, manipulative to the point where the information ecosystem would be warped beyond any kind of trust 
Uh, and, and that's now fast forward five years um, is exactly what we are experiencing with, uh, with generative AI. And I, I don't think we're, it's just like a little bit of scratching the surface today in terms of where it's going to go. Right. And uh, you know, and I'm happy to talk about some of the gen AI risks right now, if you'd like. Um, but that's something we think about quite a bit. Well, I do want to talk, you know, kind of keeping it around like the, your, your business being more enterprise customers. So what are some of the you know threats to companies and, and what your platform does to help protect? For sure. So, and, and by the way, everybody wants to know if content is generative AI driven or not right now as well. Uh, in addition to what they used to want to know, which is where are my fires today in that information space? And, and to be more specific, um, take like something like an automobile manufacturer, right? The a narrative you might always want to be looking for at its point of origin, constantly looking for is something like um, you know electric vehicles are worse for the environment than fossil fuels because they run on a dirty grid. That's a narrative, right? Okay. And uh, and and what a lot of our organizations that we work with want to understand is when is the narrative that we have to be on the back foot on. Uh, going to emerge so that we're prepared for it. In this case, this is a, a major argument against electric vehicles. This is a real narrative that's out there, and and that's something they have to be ready. They have to understand where it's coming from, why it's spreading, all of those things. So an automobile manufacturer would use it to, for like anyone else, they would look at those narratives that could be most harmful for them when they're spinning up. Is it bot driven? Is there any kind of like violent? Like, is there someone trying to arrange something that is like anti? Uh, kind of against that particular organization in the form of a boycott or something. So um, that's that's one example. Um, you know, there's there's countless other examples. Like for national security, you might want to look at, you know, are these networks that look like there's tens of thousands of people angry at the at a policy or something of that nature? Are all of the accounts on there? Do they seem to always light up whenever there is a piece of um, you know uh, content out there that benefits a particular political organization in terms of the narrative that is uh, that is out there. So say, you know, Russian actors might want to come in and inflame certain issues because it, it benefits them or it hurts the U.S. And so they'll come in and inflame fan there. So we've seen this happen time and time again. Uh, there's a company we work with that's in kind of call it infrastructure, right? And, uh, and, and so critical infrastructure, anything happens in critical infrastructure, Foreign nations are going to come in and act like pissed off Americans. Talk about how how bad the U.S. government is at uh, at regulating their own infrastructure and all of this stuff, right? Now you need to know, as say the owner of that infrastructure, right? What part of this is fabricated? Is this fabricated controversy? Do I need to react to this, or should I not react at all? Because then I'm drawing attention to exactly what they want to draw, and they're not even real people, right? So that that's another example. Um, so. Uh, we have worked with so many different organizations from supply chain risk to consumer packaged goods, uh, again, to national security and, uh, and tech, healthcare. The use case in the technology is the same, right? Understand the narrative, see how it's spreading across networks, which communities like violence or propaganda, et cetera, are actively spreading those, how much of it is bot-like activity, what is the kind of hidden influence within those networks, and then put it out there that shows 
here are all the top narratives that are harmful. And, uh, and, and that's what every organization wants from us, regardless of the use case, because it works across use cases, right? It's to understand the information ecosystem at high resolution for the risks that it presents to their company, their brand, their stock price, their executive teams. And, and, and that's something that they just simply can't understand with the tools that they've historically used for this that were more designed for a CMO than a, a chief communications officer or a chief information security officer, which is more of the, the personas that we we serve. Does it, so does it find the, the, the source and then you know alert the company like this is where it's originating and does it provide actions on how to prevent in the future? Our generative AI tools are actually starting to get uh, you know reasonably good at certain kinds of recommendations for certain verticals. It's not you know everybody talks about general intelligence versus domain specific AI. And so these are very domain specific models. Like we won't have something just like many other companies that can do general recommendations across the board for all different verticals. We say, okay, we've got our pharmaceutical here. We've got our solar energy, right? In those verticals, the recommendations can get pretty decent, right? But there's always going to be a human in the loop. This is a co-pilot, not an autopilot, right? So it's all about accelerating. And then someone in there, an analyst has to make a decision. The key thing to keep in mind here is that analyst doesn't, need to be as high paid and high powered as prior to the Gen AI tools, which is what people are finding out across the board is you can get less experienced people because the co-pilot can help them get to certain conclusions that, that the um, that the standard tools can't. And this is something we're still working on. It's in beta right now. And, and there, um, there, there's some really interesting things that I think will come out of this, but the core tool is more about understanding measurability on those narratives and the harm it presents. It won't go out, by the way. We don't fix things for them. We're not going to go out and remove posts. We're obviously not going out there and putting lawsuits out or takedowns. They do have people for that. The key thing is having that layer of strategic analysis so they can make decisions because they're kind of blind right now. Blind, I would say they can see certain things, but they're so it's so blurry that they're not going to trust in their decision making. So this is us, you know, kind of turning those dials and giving them real clarity. On the, pro- on the actual problems and, and and now they can make decisions again, right? Um, and so people usually come and ask us, we just need to know what's going on so we can go put our lawyers to work or our PR to work or our cyber to work, but they need to know what to do first. So you can't mitigate until you can measure. We are doing measurement, viewability, scale, and they can do the things that they always have done to kind of solve the problem, whether it's media litigation, you know, filing charges, et cetera, right? Great example of that is like, uh, you know, the biggest one that looks like that is is Smartmatic, right? That was a, a financial, uh, you know, repercussion for spreading disinformation about an organization, right? So that's, that's kind of a big precedent because it was close to a billion dollar payout or something. Um, so I think we will see more of that, especially as regulation starts, where you're going to need a, a really a financial uh, incentive as the stick, um, because otherwise. Other things um, will are not really um, driving behavioral change in the people who are running these campaigns. So uh, your company raised uh, a Series B round or announced it recently of uh, twenty million dollars Series B, thirty-two million total raised. So what's what are you you know looking and looking ahead for the company? What do you envision for you know growth for the team? 
you know, continuation of the platform. Sure. Yeah. I mean, for our platform, one of the key areas we are actually focusing on is, uh, is building more generative AI tools to be able to get to insights faster, to be able to summarize things, do reporting in an automated fashion. That's a big area of investment. But Blackbird has, by and large, fortunately for us, grown in a very organic manner without very many salespeople and with no marketing team. That's all about to change you know, in the next month, which is you know, part of that investment is heavily being used for some you know, rock star uh, marketing team, uh, bringing in uh, many more salespeople because we have seen that as long as we can get in front of these stakeholders, the global 1000, fortune, fortune 50, fortune 100, they definitely listen and they ultimately buy because they know that they don't have technology or solutions in place to give them real coverage. They have intelligence gaps and we can fill that. So a big part of this is marketing, awareness, positioning. Uh, that's what a big part of that funding round is for. But of course, we'll keep in innovating in Gen AI and in other areas with that with that capital as well. And uh, I think that'll be, that'll be big. And, you know, our newest category that we're also driving into there is that cybersecurity threat intel uh, you know, vertical. And so we plan on making a pretty uh, interesting set of moves here that will, you know, make sure that the cybersecurity world also kind of sees what we, what value we can provide. I'm, I'm going to uh, look for some optimistic thoughts here. Uh, mm. So there's always that cliche, you know, technology just evolves and it's evolving constantly at a faster pace. So how do you keep up, right? How do you, you know, keep your company ahead of these, you know, threats? We have a, a really, really great team. Uh, and we were long before, like you said, we were talking about this stuff long before it became a mainstream problems or mainstream concerns around GPT, et cetera, right? Um, but the key thing is we've just we've been an AI first company since the beginning. My partner, he's got a PhD in AI and multilingual. We've got eight other people who are in AI, either have masters or PhDs. A lot of investors, you know, are kind of looking out there at, companies with .ai in their domains, they don't have a single AI person to kind of rub sticks together with, and they're essentially just building things off of open AI and other APIs and calling themselves AI companies. And that's fine. If they can make money doing that, that, you know, more power to them. Um, I think for us, the reason we stay ahead though and innovative is everybody that we bring in, they're hyper curious uh, tinkerers as well. Um, and they're always looking for what is the newest thing, the newest risks, the newest things to play around with. And, and more importantly, how do you take the learnings from that and quickly assimilate it into the platform or into like a longer term R&D project that ultimately becomes something that is very valuable for the end user, right? Uh, or for the organization we're, we're serving. And so, you know, we're just in it. We're very deep in it. And now when people say you need 10,000 hours I think we've roughly calculated we've got like 50,000 hours, you know, um, and, and so it's just one of those things where a lot of the things now are almost institutional uh, knowledge that we all kind of understand and we can dial people on it quick. But that's how we stay ahead is it's just so much faster having you know, run into all the walls over the years, um, you know, and, and being able to get past that. And uh, that's what enables us at our size, you know, 20 millions. Well, 30, 30 million is is a lot, but it's also not a lot when you're trying to do this kind of work. And so we've been very, very hyper efficient through that team. And that that's part of that innovation because this stuff can get wildly expensive. GPUs, cold, hot storage, all of those things for this amount of data. 
if you're not careful and if you're not innovative with how you build that whole stack. So the actual engine is the company in terms of product. And then the dashboard is something pretty that sits on top of it so people can work with it. But the true innovation there is actually that engine. It's multilingual, multimodal analysis with the generative AI bolt-on now. That's the power of the system. And then the UIs can change or be tweaked or relabeled for different verticals, but it's just very minor uh, last mile kind of outputs that, that the API and the, and the engine is what really drives uh, us to be able to, to keep up. And that enables all of our, our team to contribute to it and keep it um, on, on the bleeding edge of, of what we need to have there to, to battle these risks. So what advice would you have for other entrepreneurs that are, you know, in this situation where maybe you were, you know, a few years back, you know, four or five years ago where, um, you know, you wanted to work on something meaningful, you and your co-founder, uh, you had this expertise and a technology that maybe you, it was obvious to you, or maybe it was just like, this is going to happen in the future. And it did. And, and the time is now for Blackbird AI to execute on this. And you've raised capital to add fuel to the fire to, to accomplish this goal. Yet five years ago, you know, investors would be like, what? Like, I don't, I don't understand what you're working on. So how do you have, you know, that continued, um, you know, conviction of building a company yet you're early to market? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, there's this kind of, there's a saying that says, if you're early, then you have to stay long enough, stay alive long enough to get lucky, right? Now, me, like personally, I, I think luck is kind of a combination of uh, preparation meeting opportunity. And we've been doing that for a long time. So, you know, I, I guess the tweak on that is we stayed solvent through years when nobody wanted to put money in at all right and continued building scrappy and now the whole world is kind of beating the path to the door because they need it and, and we've got some really robust scalable technology so that puts us in a really really good place especially having raised the the, the fresh round to be able to kind of keep that going right at the time when this combination of the elections coming up this kind of massive supply chain risks all around the world post, you know, COVID. And of course there was COVID self-driving tailwinds here because of all the, the medical misinformation. And then you've got, um, you know, the, the Russia-Ukraine war, which is a, a whole other vector of, of propaganda and and uh, kind of major risk for organizations around the world. And then you throw in generative AI, right? Which is just, just throwing the gas across all of that, right? And so I would say there couldn't be a better time for us to have that kind of high fidelity, high speed, and kind of nuanced way to look at this risk um, because in a public sector, private sector, they all have a different flavor of existential risk that they're looking at, um, you know, and uh, it was kind of funny. I, I was at a, a, a small get together in New York um, at IBM actually just two days ago. And it was, uh, it was Chuck Schumer and, uh, and the CEO of IBM. And, and one of the key things they're talking about are, are, the, are the AI panels that they're going to be doing here in the fall and the one that I am uh, talking to them about, and, and we had a good discussion with uh, with Senator Schumer and, and 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 people who are putting that together, is one around existential risk, which I think is, you know, generative AI and existential risk. I think that's kind of right up our alley. So hopefully we can inform some of the congressional members that are going to put regulation in place. Um, this is part of the the Safe Act, right? Um, and and so you know hopefully we can we can move the needle a little bit there by educating those teams in, uh, I believe, September or October when that, that starts coming together. 
Um, and so, but yeah, I mean, we are, we're kind of like trying to connect and dial in um, at different levels to really be able to, you know, affect some change both on the, uh, the, the technology empowerment side, but also be able to just people who are making the decisions now they're trying to do some of the things we're talking about here about regulation and whatnot. They have to know the bleeding edge. They have to know the, the, the critical risk on the ground and they're not in the trenches. They're like kind of looking at this holistically. And so it's important that they, they that we bring the trenches to them when they're making you know, these decisions and they're, they're building policy. And one of the other things I noticed is you're, uh, you know, you're rapidly becoming a subject matter expert that the, uh, you know, media is is tapping on to talk about these new emerging trends from a consumer angle. Uh, you know, so you've been on you know major you know network news segments now. Um, so, what advice would you have for other entrepreneurs on on obtaining that media coverage? Like, you work with a great PR firm. You obviously have built out a, a domain expertise that you know very few people have, and now it's being properly leveraged to one educate consumers about some of these bad actors, but also this is building brand awareness for your company. So what advice would you have in terms of, you know, being able to get that media coverage? Well, the media coverage is tricky, especially the, the big ones, right? Um, you know, for, for quite a while, before things were as hot in the industry, that there were misinformation, disinformation beat reporters. Things they were always looking for, frankly, I've always thought has been a little bit sometimes not helpful because they're looking for that one quote or that one, or sort of one statistic, right? Like, but it's increased 15,000%. So I see a lot of organizations kind of leaning into clickbaity statistics using small sample data. I am not much of a, I'm a very reluctant media person because I've never been much of a person who just wanted to kind of go out there and be the talking head or be the cloud chaser, uh, if you will. I, I don't mean that in a kind of negative way to people who want to be out there on, in the press, but we're trying to build things here, trying to help the client. Now it's become much more necessary because, you know, the convincing argument made to me from our PR firm, uh, which is which, who are great and they understand the domain. So that's important. They understand your domain. Um, that that's one piece of advice I'd give, but I've just I've had some fun doing this because we've been so entrenched in like uh, national security and enterprise. We don't have a consumer product that I think one of the best ways to affect that larger change and impact you know millions of people um, is is talking about the consumer risk, where, which we have interesting fidelity around as well. And, and I've kind of built that knowledge because this is all I've been doing for the last six, seven years. Um, and so to be able to share that has been a lot of fun because uh, it's interesting stuff. Like my Uber driver the other day was like, oh, you're the guy who was on that Today Show. I, I created a security word with my family. And, you know, that's it's a great thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Same thing. I, I was like, wow, yeah, that's something that <laughs> I should talk to my family about. Yeah, and for the listeners, what, what essentially what that's about is there's been a lot of audio scams using generative AI where you can take a couple of seconds, like 30 seconds or less of a person's voice and create any kind of scripted, uh, you know, dialogue that you want. So you can get on the phone, pretend you're someone's relative that, you know, we've, we've seen, you know, a, a mother go to go to Congress, essentially to talk about the fact that this generative AI voice, which was her daughter, was trying to get uh, a ransom for, for kidnapping. And, um, and we've seen instances of uh, companies thinking it's their CEO or pro procurement office trying to uh, authorize a loan or I'm sorry, authorize a wire transfer, um, you know, and so the voices sound very real. We have, um, I remember we did a, uh, a podcast recently uh, where 
you know, one of our analysts actually uh, duped her voice using one of these tools. You can actually hear how similar it is, right? And so I think the key thing for for people there, it's a very low tech piece of advice I've been giving here, which is simply having a security phrase that nobody really knows other than your family members. So that if you have any kind of suspicion, the moment they ask for money, you know, um, then you're going to know like, Hey, what's the passphrase? I mean, I have one with, uh, with a five-year-old, with our five-year-old. Right. Um, so it's, it's one of those things where you can kind of just, I know it sounds a little bit extreme, but we're, we're dealing with, uh, an arena now in the information space even outside of the information space, we're talking about on your phone, right? Um, where the, the the capacities that you used to depend on, your ears, your eyes, right? Uh, they can be easily deceived by by generative AI tools on audio, on video. And so, you know, there's kind of a heading towards this kind of zero trust environment in the information ecosystem because of how easily it is, uh, how easy it is and how low cost it is to generate text images soon videos videos out there it's not great yet but it's getting very very good and soon will be great right and soon is like months it's not years soon is months now and that's how quickly the models and generations of these are moving all right for entrepreneurs what would you recommend uh, for like a good book or or podcast recommendation yeah there's uh a great book for i think anyone who's starting a business or is entrepreneurship in general uh, it's called Beyond Entrepreneurship, and it's by Jim Collins. There's actually a, a 1.0 1 and a 2.0 version now. I'm more thinking about the 1.0, and it's a bit of an old school book with very tried and true principles uh, in it when you're building a company, team, mission, all of that. Uh, I think um, for anyone interested in national security or propaganda or in this topic particular, there's a book called The Fifth Domain, uh, and that is by Richard C. Clark. Uh, and he, he is actually one of our advisors, but I, I read his books long before he was an advisor. It's one of the reasons I tried to to chase him down. Um, and uh, and and I think there's um there's a lot in there that is very, very prevalent today. So that's an interesting one if you're interested in all things propaganda, future war, future conflicts, things of that nature. All right. So what do you like to do for fun outside of work? You know, I, I'm kind of, uh, maybe just from pandemic and whatnot, I spent a lot of time with my family and, and, and child. Right. So, um, so that's, that's pretty much one of the key things nowadays. I, uh, I, I tend to be outdoors a lot. Um, so, you know, out in the woods or out in nature and away from tech. Uh, so yeah, just things like that, things to counter, the high frequency uh, kind of toxic, um, you know, environment that we do our day to day in, right? It, you know, with the things that we do, it's a lot of knowledge uh, about, you know, all of the um, all of the things that are actually happening out there. So, you know, it's kind of like cybersecurity or national security police. You know, they, they're always in this kind of adversarial space, and so yeah, helps to get out in uh, away from. The wired world well as we've noted you know blackbird ai is doing very meaningful work so we're gonna we're gonna the glass is half full because you guys are, are, are doing a great job so what's some thoughts of optimism as we you know look into this you know future ahead of, of technology and ai yeah. well 
we've kind of come full circle here is that, you know, we're talking about nuclear technology. There is that positive and negative. So we've been talking mostly about the the, the atom bomb, you know, the nuclear missile um, for this chat, but there is that whole other side of, you know, the nuclear energy aspect of it. Meaning it's very clear that generative AI is, is kind of the, the next potential industrial revolution, let's say, um, while it's going to have its displacement components, there's going to be a lot of things that are very positive from detecting disease early um, to building new medications and, and, and vaccines. And uh, there's been just countless fusions of AI and biotech, for example, that are accelerating work that would have taken decades to get through that's going to be going much faster. Um, it, I think people just have to get used to the fact that much like the, the like the internet and electronics are in everything now, that there's going to be some sort of AI or smart function in a lot of things that will make those utilities um, better. And, uh, you know, there's pros and cons to all of it. You know, when things are thinking for you, like a GPS, you tend to think less, right? And so there's that interplay between how much you want to be dependent on those machines, but there's no... No one's gonna, no one's gonna give up their GPS at this point, right? Um, because it's just useful, it's just helpful, right? So there's gonna be things that we can't even imagine on the on the positive side that's going to make us kind of drive us toward that, I don't know, Jetsons or Star Trek like future, right? Not just from the embedded technology, but in the knowledge graph that AI can actually create to accelerate the thinking around topics that we really couldn't solve very well ourselves. Right. Um, and so I would say that, it, you know, there's there's just good things happening every day in the technology space. But I was also saying at the beginning, it's 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 easier to dwell, share or talk about the more negative ones, the more doomy ones. Right. And so that's it's kind of a, a meta uh, discussion there around we, we're all going to focus on AI ending the world, you know, versus, <laughs> you know, saving the world, because people like dystopian sci-fi, right? And yeah. it, and if it's dystopian reality, right? Um, you know, that's gonna, that's gonna drive a lot of attention. So I would say people have to kind of look at it um, in, in a bit more even way. And there are companies like ours and others in, in, in different areas that are trying to create these more defensive measures. Uh, and unfortunately, like any kind of um, cybersecurity or, or offense defense system, even in, in, in public sector, the bad thing has to happen before you can build the defense for it, right? It's always, always defense trailing offense. Otherwise, you don't even know what to build, right? So we're in that space where there's going to be some whack-a-mole for some time with um, building the defensive measures, whether that's regulation or whether it's technology systems that are going to put those protections in place. But I do think I don't think we live in a a post-truth world. The base truth, base fact has not changed. What's happened here, particularly with generative AI, is just created more noise. Hmm. And over the years, there have been many different technologies that have gotten very good at removing the noise from things, right? And so what, what our goal is and what, what we need to think about is, okay, if it's becoming more and more difficult, if reality is becoming warped, there needs to be ways to uh, reduce the noise. And, and, and that way, people can actually understand um, what the the reality is versus the the manipulation layer, 
right? And those are things that we've done over and over in many different areas of technology. Um, and, and I think we can do it here. And I think there's a lot of good people working on it. I agree. There's so much good that can come out of this next evolution of technology and AI. And like you said, like life sciences, and there's just so many amazing things that can be useful. So we're, we're going to focus on the good. And I like, I like that. I'm, I'm a glass is half full type of person too. So uh, I'm, I'm with you on that. Well, we'll see. Thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background story. Obviously all the great work that you and your team at Blackbird AI are up to and obviously all the great advice. All right. Thank you so much, Keith. I really appreciate it. And, uh, and thanks for having me. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.